0: When we seek the risen Lord above all else, He transforms our sorrows into hope. A personal relationship with the Lord Jesus makes you a member of God's forever family. Hello, students. If you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, we're going to take a look at the first half today. Uh, Four world religions are based on the personality of their founders Judaism is based on Moses, the great lawgiver, Christianity is founded on Christ, Buddhism is founded on Buddha, and of course, the origin of Islam is, is Muhammad. But only one world religion claims that its founder was God in human flesh, and only one religion claims that that God in human flesh died for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, and went back to heaven. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply a feature of Christianity, it is the capstone, the keystone event. Without an objective, empirically provable resurrection that occurred in space-time history, there is no Christianity. You're wasting your time. Paul draws out the implications of this fact, that if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, what does that mean? 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says, if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain futile, empty, meaningless. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life also, we are of all men most to be pitied. So if Christ was not raised from the dead, our sins are not forgiven. Reconciliation with God did not occur, and all humanity will be separated from God for all eternity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event by which God declared that Christ's sacrifice for sin paid our sin debt in full. Tetelestai, it is finished on the cross, means the sacrifice was paid in full. The resurrection furthermore proves that the entire creation will be redeemed. Not just the spiritual creation, but the physical creation. That means your body. Resurrection, of course, is bodily. It's not a spiritual event. It is a physical event. In the Garden of Eden, paradise was lost due to Adam and Eve's sin. And today we're going to look at in another garden, paradise is regained due to Christ's resurrection. Each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, highlight Jesus' Death, burial, and resurrection. It's really the highlight of all four Gospels. But they all have a different perspective on it, so when you look at all four Gospels, you get a full orb to look at the event. What is utterly intriguing about Scripture is that the capstone event of Christianity is resurrection, and there is no biblical record of the resurrection itself. No one saw it happen. No one witnessed it happening. It's a supernatural event. There are no human witnesses that saw the actual resurrection take place. How it happened doesn't matter. That it happened matters for all eternity. Today we're going to look at John's narrative about this, but I'm going to pull in the other four gospel writers to give us more of a full orb look at it. Let's take a look at John 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Here's our first principle. Mary was the first of many eyewitnesses to report that the stone was rolled away and Jesus' tomb was empty. Mary was the first of many eyewitnesses to report that the stone was rolled away and Jesus' tomb was empty. Interesting that John notes, this is written probably in about 90 A.D., so this is probably 55 years post-resurrection. John is looking back, and he notes it's on the first day of the week. In the book of Acts, immediately following the resurrection, you see the church worshiping on the first day of the week, as opposed to Shabbat, Saturday, Sabbath. That was the Jewish tradition for uh, 1,400 years. Ever since Christ rose from the dead, Sunday has become the first day of the week. It becomes the day of the week by which we measure everything else because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. Now Mary Magdalene from the village of Magdala, M-A-G-D-A-L-A. The Talmud uh, records that Magdala was known for prostitution, so it's possible that that was part of Mary's past. We really know very little about her past other than the fact that Jesus set her free from seven demons possessed her. I don't know how bad your life is, but I will guarantee you it's not that bad. You may live with people you think are demons, but they don't possess you, just by way of perspective. I know some of you are going to have Christmas this year with relatives, and you may say, you don't know my relatives, Brad. Yeah, I have those too. I, I really do. I do comprehend that. Her life must have been painful and miserable beyond comprehension before Jesus found her. Jesus came, gave her forgiveness, peace, purpose, dignity, unconditional love, completely transformed her life. And she is recorded throughout Scripture as one of Jesus' most devoted and faithful followers who just simply loved him. She was the first follower of Jesus at the tomb. It was still dark on Sunday morning. Now, remember, on Friday, Christ was crucified, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, watched by some women, buried him, and he was in the ground before sundown, 6 p.m. on Friday night. On Saturday, the Sanhedrin had a nightmare and said, "Uh uh-oh, he promised he would rise from the dead, we need to do something about this. So the Jewish religious leaders broke their Sabbath, went to Pilate and said, Pilate, this guy promised he was going to rise from the dead. We think his disciples are going to steal the body and then promote this lie that he rose from the dead. We want you to seal the tomb with an official Roman seal, which breaking was a capital crime, and we want you to post a Roman guard to make sure that that doesn't take place. And Pilate said, make it as secure as you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted a Roman guard. Now, the Gospel of Matthew tells what happened Very early Sunday morning. This is the first sequential event that we have with respect to the resurrection. Matthew 28, 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So we have a severe but very localized earthquake, an angel appears in blinding light, the guards are terrorized and pass out, divine anesthesia I guess, and Matthew records that these soldiers did wake up, and when they woke up they went back into Jerusalem and told the Sanhedrin, my gosh this is what happened, an angel came from heaven rolled away the stone and the tomb is empty. Now. Fail, sleeping on the job was a capital crime. The Sanhedrin said, well, just tell them you fell asleep. And the disciples came while you were asleep and stole the body. How would you know they stole the body if you were sleeping? Doesn't make much sense, but they bribed the soldiers and they bribed the, the pilot's office to let them off. So anyway, that was the story at that point in time. So we have soldiers that are eyewitnesses. We have an angel as an eyewitness rolled away the stone, Jesus' body is gone, and all of this takes place before verse 1 of chapter 20. Mary shows up to the tomb. Luke 24 tells us that she leaves Jerusalem not by herself. She tells, Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and Salome also came before sunrise. So there's multiple women who are coming to the tomb, and they're bringing spices to complete the process of Jesus' burial. Mark 16 says they ask each other as they're walking toward the tomb, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance? See, a ceiling stone for a tomb, typically, as you saw last week, is about two to three tons. So, you know, the size of a car. And it was placed on a groove track, and the groove track was kind of downhill. So... You'd have to take this stone and roll it uphill in order to open the tomb, and it weighed three tons. So someone had to be strong enough to roll it uphill. And when they arrived, they found the stone rolled away and an empty tomb. By the way, just in case you're wondering, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the witnesses in, to verify the fact that he had risen. So immediately, they get to the tomb. Mary Magdalene runs and goes back to tell Peter and John. After Mary leaves and goes back to tell Peter and John, the remaining women encounter two angels in dazzling white clothing. Luke 24 tells us that the women were terrified. But the angels tell them that the tomb is empty because Jesus has risen from the dead just like he told you he was going to do. After Jesus appears to bury, Matthew 28.8 records that the women go back to Jerusalem, and as they're going back to Jerusalem, Jesus meets them on the way and tells them. They actually have a chance to worship him. He tells them, tell my disciples I'm going to Galilee, I'm going to meet them there. So there are multiple witnesses in the very first few minutes of this Sunday morning. We have the soldiers, we have Mary, we have the angels, we have the women, witnessing that Jesus has risen, but there's a problem. The disciples don't believe any of it. Luke 24.11 says that when the women came to the apostles and reported that the angels had said, Jesus has risen, he's not here. The apostles thought they were speaking nonsense and refused to believe any of it. Luke 24.11. Now, let's pick up John's narrative in verse 2. So she, Mary Magdalene, "...came into town and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, quote, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him," unquote. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Here's our second principle. The shape and placement of Jesus' grave clothes confirmed his resurrection. The shape and placement of Jesus' grave clothes confirmed his resurrection. So Mary comes, she sees the stone rolled away from the tomb, and she immediately jumps to the conclusion that grave robbers have stolen Jesus' body. Now, grave robbing was illegal at that point, but it had become so common that a few years later, Emperor Claudius issues an edict that makes it a capital crime. You break into a tomb, you're going to die. You move the ceiling stone. That also was a capital crime. So Mary draws the wrong conclusions, we'll find out, that someone has stolen his body and she runs into town and she goes to where? Peter, who is still considered the leader of the disciples despite his denial, and John, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And they decide to run and check it out. And I don't know why John says he ran faster than Peter. Maybe he said, I'm younger than Peter, but anyway, he got to the tomb first but he didn't go in. It says he stooped down and looked in, but he didn't go in. And he saw the linen clothes that had been used to wrap Jesus' body. Peter, Mr. Impetuous, he arrives and he just goes right in, which you would expect Peter to do. And he sees the linen wrappings lying there, and it says he also sees the head cloth rolled up some distance away. Now, the state of these linen wrappings is not consistent with a grave robbery. If you're going to steal a body, you don't unwrap it before you steal it. It's a whole lot more, it's a lot easier and it's a heck of a lot more pleasant to remove a body that's already wrapped than a naked corpse, just saying. Furthermore, the spices that wrap the body, there's a hundred weight of them, that were very, very valuable. If you were going to steal the body, you would sure want to steal the spices because that was very expensive stuff that Nicodemus had gotten together to wrap Jesus' body. So the state of the wrappings seemed to be, have been in the exact shape of Jesus' body. The spices would have hardened, which they were designed to do, and hardened the linen wrappings into the shape that was wrapped. And these hardened, spice-hardened wrappings, I want you to think of a chrysalis or a cocoon. A cocoon takes the shape of what's inside. A chrysalis takes the shape of what's inside. It appeared to them that the the grave wrappings were the exact shape of Jesus' body, and Jesus' resurrected body had supernaturally passed through the cloths and left them behind in the exact shape of his body as a silent testimony of his resurrection. It says the face cloth that they wrapped his face was neatly folded up, very organized, set aside in a very organized fashion when Jesus no longer needed it. Now, both Peter and John come into the tomb. They see the same things, and they draw different conclusions. Verse 8. So the other disciple, John, who first came into the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Here's the principle. Sight sees the evidence. Insight understands the meaning of the evidence. Sight sees the evidence. Insight understands the meaning of the evidence. Now John uses three Greek words here for the English word to see or to look. Three different Greek words. The first one is John, it says John looked into the tomb, looked. That Greek word is blepo, and it means to glance. It means to notice. It's a casual, quick glance. He looks. Peter goes into the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings. Now, that's a different Greek word. That word saw is theoral, where we get our word theater, theater. It means to look at, it means to gaze at, it means to behold, it means to study. You know, when you go to a theater, you are what? Gazing at the stage. When you go to a movie theater, what are you doing most of the time? Looking at your screen. When you're on your addictive little device here called your smartphone, you are looking at that, are look. you are studying at it, you are gazing at it, right? I've seen people walk into walls with their phone in front of them. Very easy to pickpocket those people because they have no situational awareness at all. So Peter goes in, he gazes at the evidence, the linen wrappings, the head covering, but he doesn't draw a conclusion about what he sees. Luke 24.12 tells us that Peter went to his home wondering to himself what had happened. John then entered the tomb, and it says he saw and believed. Now, that's another Greek word, eido, e-i-d-o, and it means to know. It means to see with understanding. It means to see with comprehension. See, Peter and John went into the tomb, saw the same evidence, but John understood that the evidence meant that Jesus had risen from the dead. He looked at the shape of the grave clothes and the organization, and Peter had sight, but John had insight. John believed that Jesus rose from the dead, not just because the tomb was empty, but because the grave clothes were intact in the same shape as the body. By the way, this intact grave clothes also disproves the so-called swoon theory. There are people that believe that Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of swooned and they put him in the grave, and the cool grave kind of revived him. And he got up, he unwrapped himself from the grave clothes, which we knew Lazarus couldn't do. And Jesus, uh, after the cross, he pushed aside the three-ton stone all by himself, of course, and then convinced the disciples that he had risen from the grave and walked, you know, seven miles to the road to Emmaus, etc., etc. Well, this kind of, the organized grave clothes kind of puts that to shame because You can't unwrap yourself and then wrap the grave clothes back up in the same shape as the body. Okay, But at this time, John notes that none of the disciples understood the biblical prophecies that Jesus must rise from the dead. Only after the resurrection occurred did they begin to understand that God had planned and predicted Jesus' resurrection from the Scriptures. Psalm 16.10 says, For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you, God, allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to undergo decay. Well, Jesus was only in the tomb for three days. He obviously didn't decay. Isaiah 53, the great chapter on the suffering servant, verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Jesus went to the cross because the Father willed it. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, Christ would render himself as a guilt offering, dying in our place. What's the consequence of him rendering himself as a guilt offering? He, Christ, will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. We're clearly talking about life after death. If you're going to see your offspring and prolong your days, you're clearly alive, right? Isaiah 53 predicts that. Even more so, Jesus earlier had predicted to the disciples face to face, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. And he said, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish, even so the Son of Man will spend three days in the belly of the earth. Matthew 12. Matter of fact, Jesus had already predicted his own death and resurrection, but the disciples did not want to hear it. Matthew 16 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. How did the disciples respond to that? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Right? The disciples didn't want the cross to be true. And so they resisted any evidence or any warnings that Jesus gave them that he was going to die in the future. They didn't believe the resurrection in the first place even once they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. It didn't change their lives. Your intellectual knowledge that Jesus rose from the dead will not change your life. It won't. The only thing that changes your life is a face-to-face, direct encounter with the living Christ. A relationship with the living Christ is what's going to change their lives and what changes every believer's life throughout history. Verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus.' Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Here's the principle. When we seek the risen Lord above all else, he transforms our sorrows into hope. When we seek the risen Lord above all else, he transforms our sorrows into hope. I want you to know I didn't say he transforms your sorrows into joy. You can have hope in the middle of sorrows. As a matter of fact, that's probably the only way you will have hope, is in the middle of sorrows. Because this life is sorrowful. It's broken. And I talk to people and they say, this life is such a mess. Of course it is. It's separated from God. It's going to be a mess. It's coming. Heaven is coming. It's just not here yet. So the sequence is Mary goes to notify Peter and John of the empty tomb. Peter and John run to the tomb. They get there. They go inside and they leave. After they leave, Mary comes back to the tomb. She's grieving over the loss of Jesus and she's weeping inconsolably. And the Jewish tradition for weeping at graves was loud and inconsolable. It's a bit lighter now, and it says she bends over and peers into the tomb. And she sees two angels sitting, one at the head where Jesus was laid and one at the feet. Kind of reminds me, if you will, of the Holy of Holies in the temple or the Ark of the Covenant where the Ark of the Covenant sat. There were two angels facing each other, wings overstretched. The temple inside on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. That's where the high priest would sprinkle blood. Kind of interesting, we have two angels, one at the foot of Jesus and one at the head. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. It's a little bit of a word picture there at that point. Now, the word angel means messenger. Angels, of course, are created beings. They're spiritual beings who serve God and God's people. What is utterly interesting is Mary doesn't even seem to be frightened by them. And they start having a conversation with her, which is interesting. And they ask her an odd question. This is an odd question. Why are you weeping? Well, duh, why are you weeping, right? At a loved one's death, we normally... Weep, right? We normally sorrow. It would be unusual not to sorrow if a loved one died. However, suppose your loved one was no longer dead. Would you still be weeping? The angels are saying, Mary, in light of what's just happened, you have no reason to weep. There's not a justification for your tears. In Luke 24.5, it says, after Mary left the tomb to find Peter and John, the angels asked the remaining women a fascinating question. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why would you go find a living person in a cemetery? You're looking in the wrong place. And Mary, of course, has a conversation with the angels. She says, I'm weeping because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She still obviously believes there have been grave robbers. Now, that's a significant problem. She uses the name Lord, my Lord. Now, the word Lord means sovereign, master, ruler, overall, sovereign, the ruler. If Jesus really is Lord and he really is sovereign, master, nobody took him anywhere without his permission. Just saying. If Jesus is not Lord, then he really is dead and gone, and the location of his body is irrelevant. Doesn't matter. Life couldn't get any worse than that. But the truth is, life was going to be far better for Mary than she had ever imagined. And you and I understand that sometimes God's greatest blessings are found in the middle of life's greatest adversities. If we open our eyes and see The angels asked her a question, why are you weeping? In other words, why are you upset? Ever had the Holy Spirit ask you why you're upset? Ever lost your cool and had the Holy Spirit convict you and say, why did you just lose your cookies over that? Why are you in despair, oh my soul, and why are you disturbed within me, David says. Usually, being upset, being angry is because we have a blocked goal. We have something that we desperately want and we don't think we can get and we get angry and frustrated and upset. So next time you're angry about something, ask yourself, what goal am I pursuing that is blocking, that I can't have now? And that blocked goal is what produces the anger and the being upset question is, is that a right goal in the first place? Just a little practical advice, bring that to the Lord and ask him. Because a lot of times the things we think we have to have, God says, you don't need that. That's why I'm not giving it to you. So Mary's talking to the angel and Jesus comes up behind her. Now we don't know what prompted her to turn her back on the angels to look at Jesus. I can imagine though, that if you're an angel and you're talking to this woman, and all of a sudden you see over the angel's shoulder, the King of glory, Jesus Christ, your Creator. There would be a shock of recognition that God is here. And maybe Mary saw that in the face and wheeled around. Jesus asked her two questions too. One, why are you weeping? Why are you upset? Which is a mild rebuke in light of the fact of what just happened. You have no reason to be upset that's also true for us and number two whom are you seeking mary is seeking a corpse she's looking for a dead body and the living christ is standing right here in front of her she doesn't recognize him. now i know it's early morning it's somewhat dark she's been crying she's upset she's got probably got tears in her eyes But even more so, she doesn't expect to see Jesus alive. She just saw him killed a day and a half ago. It's like, you've had this experience, you see someone you know, but you see them in a different setting than you normally see them, and it can be hard to place them because they're out of place. You normally see them at church, and now you see them at a grocery store, and you go, I know you, but you're not in the right place. If I saw you at church, I would know your name, and now I see your face, and I'm going, I know you. So Mary's not looking to see Jesus alive. She's looking for a corpse, and that's the set of eyeglasses she has on. Now, by the way, she's not the only person that had trouble recognizing Jesus after his resurrection. Luke spends a lot of time talking about these two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and they walk with Jesus for seven miles And they don't recognize him. The seven disciples fishing on the Sea of Galilee in John 21, they don't recognize Jesus either. Now, let's take a look at why. Number one, his face had been beaten to a pulp. And he had his beard pulled out, literally plucked out before he was crucified. But even more than the physical marring, Isaiah 53 said his face was marred more than any man. Even more than that, Jesus now has a resurrection body. His resurrection body has continuity with his pre-resurrection body, but it's also different. It's a glorified body. It's a body with supernormal powers. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Paul is trying to explain something that's really not explainable to the finite human mind. He says, quote, So also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That's what we have now. The resurrection body is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So you are getting a serious upgrade and so am I when Christ comes and raises his own from the dead or takes them home in the rapture. I really like this, it is sown in weakness, I is raised in power because every time I get into bed in the morning I'm going, oh man, I'm looking forward to this new body, believe me. So Jesus has that body. It has continuity with his earthly body, but it is glorified, its resurrected body. So Mary looks straight at Jesus, doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Now, who else would be up at daylight in a garden? Probably the gardener. That's probably a logical conclusion. So on the chance that this gardener might have moved Jesus' body elsewhere, she asks where he'd taken the body? Now, the reality is, if he told her, she couldn't carry the body of Jesus plus 100 pounds of spices. doesn't matter. When when you love, you don't think about the details, right? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to her in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Here's the principle. A personal relationship with the Lord Jesus makes you a member of God's forever family. A personal relationship with the Lord Jesus makes you a member of God's forever family. Now, Jesus does not reveal himself visually to Mary, but vocally. It takes one word to change her life forever. He calls her name. He says, Mary. And she recognizes his voice. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. How familiar are you with the voice of Jesus? If he whispered, would you hear? Or does he have to shout like he did to Job? This is undoubtedly the greatest recognition scene in all the Bible. The second greatest recognition scene is Joseph. Reveal himself to his brothers. And he says, I am Joseph, your brother. And Joseph's brothers are terrified because they sold him into slavery and they now found out he's the prime minister of Egypt. Mary, on the other hand, is joyful beyond words. Rabboni means my teacher. The word rabbi also means my teacher. The word rabboni or raboni, it generally was only used when you were approaching God in prayer. Which is fascinating because Jesus is God. It's a title, my divine teacher. Jesus does not need to be found by Mary. Mary's been looking for Jesus. Where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the body? Jesus finds Mary, and he will find you and me. The truth is, we often miss Jesus in the middle of what we're chasing, in the middle of what we're seeking. I'm sure Jesus asks us on a regular basis, what are you seeking? When you get up in the morning, every one of us has an agenda. Maybe it's to do nothing but watch reruns on the couch or play around on the internet, whatever. But we all have an agenda when we wake up. I mean, other than food, right? If Jesus asks you, what are you seeking? How would you answer him? The the truth of it is, we often chase the stuff of this world. What we really need, above all else, is Jesus. Matthew 6.33 says what? This is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I know many of us in this room are familiar with suffering, to some degree. I know many of us in this room are, are conversant with uh, family brokenness and just the general mess of life ever asked where god is in the middle of your mess god where are you you could show up anytime now my life is in a real disaster zone he's right in front of you he's never left matthew 28:20 20 said i am with you always even to the end of the age Hebrews 13.5, Jesus promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Our problem is not that He's not present. Our problem is we don't recognize His presence when He's here. Jesus is always with His people. The Holy Spirit lives inside everyone who belongs to Jesus. Even more so, Jesus knows your name. And He knows your pain. Isaiah 43.1 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. There is great comfort in belonging to Jesus. And there is great comfort that He belongs to you in an eternal life relationship. Jesus' first appearance was to Mary. Very first. A redeemed sinner with an awful past who loved Him and needed Him. You know, Jesus could have shown up to anybody. By the way, if you were writing a proof and you wanted a reliable witness for the first one to see Jesus, you would not have used Mary. She had a very questionable past, and she was a woman, and a woman's testimony was not even admissible in a court of law at that point in time. But Jesus chose to reveal himself to Mary first. She loved him enough to stay at the cross until the end. Who was the first one at the tomb? Mary. Proverbs eighteen seventeen says, Those who seek me early shall find me. I mean, that obvious is be like Mary. Seek Jesus early. You'll find him. I'm pretty convinced Jesus is exceedingly available about five in the morning. It's a question of do I care enough to get out of bed and meet with him? Jesus says something fascinating to her. He says, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended. Well, think about it. When Mary says Rabboni, she thought she had lost Jesus. And now he's standing right in front of her, and she's not going to let him go. She's got him in a death grip. I mean, she's clutching him, bear hug. Which means he's got a real physical body she's hanging on to. And Jesus basically says, you don't need to hang on to me like I'm going to disappear. I am going to heaven, but not right now. You will have opportunity to see me between now and the time I'm going to heaven. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared multiple times to his disciples, but he didn't appear continually. He appeared whenever he decided to appear, because he now has a glorified body. He's preparing to return to his Father in heaven. The nature of her relationship with Jesus had changed because he had changed. He normally had a physical body that only moved in one place at a time. Now he's got a glorified body that's getting ready to go back to heaven, and he appears at will. Now, Jesus had a job for her to do. He said, don't hang on to me because i got work for you to do. I'm going to turn you from a mourner into a missionary. I've given you the first Easter message. Go to my disciples, tell them I've risen. And you've talked to me. And interestingly enough, Jesus calls his disciples brethren. Brethren. That's a family term. It means brothers. Because of Christ's conquest of sin and death, we are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. Now, Jesus is God's son by nature and by right. We are God's children by adoption and grace. But it's unbelievably, it is believable only because God promised that we would be called children of God. When you read 1 John, uh, 2 John, and 3 John, it is all over the place. John is amazed that God would call us family members. It's the greatest of all privileges to be part of God's forever family. Briefly, let me summarize by giving you three major evidences for the resurrection. First of all, the empty tomb. The Jewish religious leaders were very motivated to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Now, if you want to disprove the resurrection once and for all, there's one very simple thing you have to do. Produce the body. If you can produce the body, this whole resurrection scam goes away and yet no one could dispute an empty tomb because no one could produce the body. So the Jewish religious leaders spread the rumor that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body and proclaimed that he had risen from the dead. Number one, they were scared, they were locked down, they were in hiding. Number two, there was a Roman seal, there were Roman guards guarding the tomb, and so a lot of reasons why the disciples couldn't steal the body. Number two, we we already talked about the witness of the grave clothes. If someone stole the body, why didn't they take the clothing? If if Jesus had really swooned, he would unwrap himself. That obviously didn't happen. But secondly, there were multiple eyewitness encounters post-resurrection. Multiple eyewitness encounters over multiple locations over a 40-day period. There's at least 10 distinct appearances of Christ between the resurrection and the ascension. We talked about today, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the women on the road returning from the tomb, Matthew 28. He later appeared to Peter one to one, to restore him the same day. That evening he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and that same night he appeared to all the disciples except Thomas in the upper room. Five appearances within one day. A week later he shows up and Thomas is present. We'll take a look at that next week. Then he appears to the seven disciples by the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he 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 restores peter he bit, cooks breakfast for them etc they didn't recognize him then either paul notes in 1 corinthians 15 he appeared to more than 500 disciples at one time on a mountain in galilee he appeared to james and of course to the apostles when he ascended into heaven from the mount of olives after his ascension he appeared to paul and his next appearance will be in glory upon his return so one of the one of the arguments against the resurrection is it's called hallucination hypothesis. It says that Jesus' followers so desperately wanted to believe the resurrection that they only imagined that they saw Jesus alive. Well, number one, the disciples didn't believe he was resurrected in the first place. So that doesn't hold any water. Secondly, hallucinations usually occur in an individual at a particular point in time. If this is hallucinations, it took place hundreds of people over a 40-day period where there are no record historically of hallucinations on a mass scale taking period over a period of time. That is an old water. Powerfully, the third evidence is the radical transformation of the disciples. They were terrified, locked into an upper room, and when they saw Jesus, they rejoiced, and within three days of his death, they had gone from sorrow to joy, from fear to courage. God's going to take these disciples, which I wouldn't have bet anything on before the resurrection, and he's going to use them to, tra- to take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, burial, death, and resurrection, and he's going to change the world. He's going to turn the world upside down. Read the book of Acts and find out what the presence of the Holy Spirit did in the life of these 12 formerly terrified disciples who are now in the power of God turning the world upside down. And you and I are called to do the same because we've been given the same privilege. We have a relationship with the risen Christ. Let's summarize, and then I'll have Tom come up and lead us in prayer and praise. Mary was the first of many eyewitnesses to report that the stone was rolled away and Jesus' tomb was empty. So we have a lot of eyewitnesses. Testimony from an eyewitness is admissible in a court of law. Two, the shape and placement of Jesus' grave clothes confirmed his resurrection. There was no other way to explain that data point other than by a resurrection. Here's a very applicable point number three. Sight sees the evidence. Insight understands the meaning of the evidence. The world looks at the same data you do. They read the same Bible you do if you read it. If they read it, they don't understand any of it. They're reading the same data, but they're drawing no conclusion from it. Not an accurate conclusion. Where does our insight come from to understand this document? Ultimately, from the Holy Spirit, who gives you insight to understand. Here's what is intriguing As you study God's Word, He will continually give you increased insight. You will continually understand more and more as you apply and obey what you already know. The more light you obey, the more light you get. Number four, when we seek the risen Lord above all else, He transforms our sorrows into hope. Mary was seeking other than the living Christ. She was looking for a dead body not to carry this analogy too far, but when you chase the stuff of this world, you're chasing a corpse. Everything in this life is going to rot. It's falling apart. Have you ever noticed how much of our lives today are spent on maintenance? Maintenance. Everything you own takes maintenance, including your body and your mind and your relationships. And your stuff. You know, we've got gates to the backyard, and we haven't locked or unlocked those gates in 15 years, so they're all rusted out because I have not done any maintenance. Now I'm going to have to tear them all down. Right? If you don't maintain things, they fall apart. Right? When we're seeking the living Lord, you know, Mary was seeking Jesus, but she was seeking a dead Jesus. When we pray, do we understand who we're talking to? We talk to the Father in the name of the Son, but the Son is risen from the dead. This is the living Lord eternal. Behold, I was dead and now I'm alive and I've been alive forevermore, right? Conquered sin and death and hell. And when we seek Him above all else, He transforms our sorrows into hope. And lastly, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus makes you a member of God's family we have been given an enormous privilege here at church that we can do life together. It is almost inexpressible. What we have here is what the world craves. To do life with a family. And the family, what bonds us together is who? It's Jesus. It's not because we're so compatible we're not compatible with ourselves most of the time. You look in the mirror and go, Who's that idiot, right? I mean, but we have Jesus in common, and He's the one that gives us individual life and gives us corporate life. So, on one day, Christmas Eve, we look at the incarnation and we look at the resurrection. How great a God we serve, amen? Love you all. Now that you know, we do. do.